figure it out. But um, uh, we are basically talking again this morning in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, and um, we're moving from spiritual economics, as we've been talking about over the last couple weeks, to spiritual warfare again. Uh, this is an ongoing theme, if you will, in Paul's epistle to the Corinthians. There's a group within the church that are causing chaos and fighting, infighting within the church. And so he's having to address his own ministry once again and how to deal with some of these accusations. Um, so hopefully, uh, um, hopefully our brother Keith will get some encouragement out of this this morning. Uh, I feel like every time, he, every time you come visit with us, this is all I'm talking about. So it must be for you that we're hearing this this morning. Uh, but, but for us as well and for all of God's church, it is... I think what we'll find continually, at least in the United States today, is that we may not be persecuted a lot from outside the church, but we certainly get a lot of it inside the church, just over and over and over again. The devil will find a way to attack us where we're weak. So hear the word of the Lord, beginning in chapter 10, verse 1. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I'm away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Let's pray together. Father, again, we offer up to you our hearts, uh, our emotions, our thoughts, uh, our whole being, our whole heart. We, We give it to you, Lord. We ask that your Wisdom from on high would continue to infiltrate every aspect of who we are, what we think, what we say, what we do. Lord, we know that uh, your law commands more than anything else that we would love you with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. We pray that as your Holy Spirit continues to illumine our minds that he would enable us to do that very thing, that we would grow more and more in love for you and in love for your church, we pray in Christ's name, amen. The Art of War is a Chinese military treatise that was written way back in the 5th century B.C. prior to the time of Christ by the brilliant strategist named Sun Tzu, or Master Sun as it's translated in the English. It's a manual that has been used for the last few thousand years now. In fact, not only just in the East, but now also in the West. The United States came across it uh, very um, Poignantly, I guess you could say, after uh, the, the Vietnam War, after we saw the Vietnamese use these strategies again and again, utilizing the topography of the land, constantly doing feints in the fight deceptive, after, after deception, learning how to fight a war without ever having to win a battle. Uh, if you think about it, uh, the Vietnam War, the Americans won every single battle, and yet we still didn't win the war. And so it it came to the attention that now every single U.S. military intelligence officer is required to read The Art of War 
do we, so that we might know how to fight in different uh, settings and different topographies and different things of that nature. But it may be a gross oversimplification of the Vietnam War, and I'm not trying to discredit uh, the honor and the valor that's due to our troops and certainly to our country. But nevertheless, in order to win a war, you have to know how to end it. You have to know how to continue to pick up a strategy in order to, to have victory. And in this particular case, it's, it's helpful from what Paul is saying in this perspective of the church. We have to have a strategy, if you will, to deal with Satan's ongoing attacks because he does the same thing. Remember, Christ has already won the war. He has already been risen from the dead. The church will prevail. The gates of hell will not stand against him. And yet, the devil will continue to attack. (laughs) He'll continue to to lie in ambush and continue to set up all sorts of schemes and traps to discourage the church of Christ. How can the church fight against such guerrilla warfare, if you will? When our text this morning, Paul's not dealing with the devil directly. Rather, he's talking about opposition within the church of Christ itself. This is a regular pattern, right? Uh, Very rarely is anyone having to fight against a demon um, directly, but rather something is happening where uh, demonic warfare is taking place even within uh, the gathering of the saints. I I shared with our small group the other night when we started our study in 1 Peter that even persecution rarely happens because someone absolutely just hates Christ. Uh, he, at least not directly. He doesn't know what he's doing. He just doesn't like what the church is doing. And the church is hurting him in some way, taking away things. You think about uh, the, the idol makers in, in Ephesians, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians. They were losing their livelihood, and therefore they attacked the church. This is the norm. Something is happening where people aren't getting what they want, and so they attack Christ and his church. But even within the church, we see this. If you remember, Peter himself was acting on behalf of Satan when he tried to stop Jesus from going to the cross. And what does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan, right? Again, Paul is not talking about fighting Satan, but oftentimes how do we deal with even satanic thought patterns, satanic worldviews, satanic schemes that are taking place even within the context of the church? So what basically to understand where we're coming from here, the Apostle Paul is basically being accused of having all bark and no bite. That's his latest accusation that's against him. Basically, he's very strong and passionate when he's writing letters to them, telling them what they need to do, but when he's face-to-face with them, he's kind of mousy. That's what they're accusing him of. Basically, that he's not willing to go toe-to-toe with those that he stands in opposition to. Uh, Paul has already been accused of a number of things by these so-called super-apostles. There's some people who have come from outside of this particular church, have come into it, and have declared their own authority. They take great pride in their credentials, diminishing Paul's credentials, and they're constantly sort of puffing themselves up by their own oratorical skills, by their esoteric visions, and by their popularity within the church. They keep saying, Paul is nothing in comparison to us in so many words. And so, essentially now, Paul is being accused of being a coward, that he may talk big, but he really doesn't have anything, uh, any, any strength, if you will. Ironically, though, Paul is admitting many of these half-truths that they're pointing out to the rest of the congregation. He's basically admitting that, yes, indeed, when he was with them the last time, he was very lowly and gentle in their presence. And yet, in the meantime, there had been this letter that was very hard, if you will, very hard words he had to speak to them because of their disobedience uh, to Christ, to the gospel, and to Paul's authority. And yet now again, he's telling them, once again, he's begging them. He's not, 
He's not commanding them by his great authority as an apostle, but rather begging them, please listen to what I'm saying so that when I come, I don't have to be that harsh person. I don't have to be that person that throws away, throws my weight around. I'd rather you come and hear what I have to say because of the truth of the gospel itself. And so in other words, he, he wants to win them by the truth, but also by the love of Christ. He, he doesn't want to just bring the law to them. He wants to be able to bring the gospel. And so he's, he's focusing on this again and again. But again, it's, there's, there's no contradiction, if you will, between boldness and meekness. I think Paul does this very well. On the one hand, a person can be very meek and lowly in their view of themselves and yet also be very bold when it comes to the authority of Christ, representing his words as an ambassador for Christ. In fact, I think the person who is the most bold as an ambassador is usually the most meek man as well because he's not relying upon his own strength, not relying upon his own wisdom, but rather relying upon the authority of Christ. And, and so Paul's coming to the church not wanting to break their spirits with the law, with his authority, but he's wanting to build them up, uh, again, through the love spoken uh, of the truth. First um, Peter, again, we're going to be going through this in our small groups uh, over the next few months. Particularly, God calls the elders of the church not to be domineering over those in their charge, but rather to be an example to the flock in these very ways, in love, in gentleness, in meekness, if you're going to win the church, you're not going to win it by throwing, away, throwing your weight around. It's only going to come through modeling those very aspects of the love of Christ. And so Charles Spurgeon once said in reference to this that we ought to use hard arguments and soft words. Especially in today's culture where most people use hard words and very soft words soft-headed arguments. They're not thinking, and yet they're screaming at you. The church should be the other way around. We should use hard arguments and soft words. That is the way in which the church wins the battle, if you will. Uh, Again, that doesn't mean that leaders are meant to be pushovers or softies in some way, uh, but rather they're to be bold in the truth, but yet meek in their own personality. Again, even if you just compare this to Jesus, right? Jesus is, is confronting the Pharisees, calling them a brood of vipers at times. He's being very bold in his approach, even overturning the tables of the money changers in the temple complex. There are times in which he has to be very bold. But the norm is to win them also through the love of Christ. There will be plenty of opportunities in the church for people to disagree with the leaders of the church. It's never happened here, thankfully. Everyone always agrees with the elders here, which I love. Um, but, but when people could potentially disagree with you, you're not going to win them by simply throwing, away, throwing around your weight. It's going to have to come also through this aspect of the love of Christ. So, even though the accusers have spoken evil of Paul on many different occasions, Paul is not seeking to destroy them. He's not seeking to humiliate them, but rather to defend his gospel before them with gentleness and respect. So here's where he goes. Verse 3, he says, Though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. So again, he's not talking about let's pick up a weapon and kill everybody who disagrees with us. Let's pick up a weapon and destroy the enemy. He's not saying that. Rather, he's saying use spiritual weapons to do spiritual battle in order to win brothers back to Christ and to attack the true enemy your true adversary, which is the devil. 
It's one of the things that uh, we were talking about again in our small group the other night. It's interesting as Peter keeps talking about the different aspects of suffering that the believers in the churches in Turkey were facing at the time, many, many different aspects of suffering, but he never calls any of those people under which they suffer the adversary. It's only when it gets to the end when the devil's prowling around like, the, the, like a lion, he says, this is your adversary. Not these other people who have caused these suffering, but this is your adversary. You have to know the difference. So the word that Paul uses in the Greek that's translated as waging war in the ESV is the root of our English word strategy. And what we have to understand is there's a strategy that devil uses, and there's a strategy that those who are under his influence use, but then there's also a strategy that God's people use in following God's strategy. And the Lord's strategy is very simple. Uh, three steps he's laying out for us at least t- today in our passage this morning. Really simple, but how do we apply these things? That's where it's going to come down to. Here are the three steps. First, the Lord calls his people to destroy strongholds. Destroy them. Secondly, he calls his people to take captives. I'll explain that in a minute. <laughs> and then third, he calls them to punish every disobedience. That sounds pretty tough, doesn't it? Let's talk about a little bit what that means. Again, these commandments are, are, are given in the context of church discipline, so we're absolutely right, and it's fitting to use them in the context of church discipline, but I, I'd also say you could use these same commands in the regular context of just ongoing sanctification, our own fight against the devil in our own growth as a Christian. It can also be used in the context of apologetics and evangelism as well because you're trying to win arguments, not to destroy people, if you will. So a lot of this applies, but know that the immediate context in which we find these words are in the context of church discipline within the church at Corinth. But the general principle is this. For Christ to have sway over individual hearts, for the gospel to gain a foothold, if you will, evil has to be confronted. Evil has to be defeated in its earliest arguments, if you will. And so if you remember even in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve are attacked by the devil, does the devil pick up the sword? Does the devil hurt them physically in any way? How does the devil win the battle? Through an argument. He basically argues that there's a different way than God's way, right? It's the same thing when when the devil attacks Jesus in the wilderness. What does he do to Jesus? Nothing. He just uses arguments. The difference is Jesus had a scheme to defeat his arguments. Adam and Eve did not, right? And if you follow Jesus' tactics, which is what Paul is showing us here this morning, you will have much more success than you've had. At least that's where he's going with this. Um, this particular scheme. So let's look at the first one. We're called to destroy strongholds. Look at verse 4. Paul says there, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. You know, in, in many ancient cities, there was a place within the city that was generally called the fortress or the strong uh, tower or, or somehow a stronghold of some way. In other words, it was a, 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 an especially protected place to keep uh, especially the most important people safe within the city, but also they could unleash or barrage uh, fire upon their enemies as well. Um, and what we learned in the last couple of weeks in our devotionals in the book of Joshua is that a number of the Canaanite cities had these types of strongholds. And the cities that had them were much harder to conquer. In fact, many of those Canaanite cities that 
the Canaanites still lived amongst the Israelites was because they had strongholds that the Israelites could not defeat. And so we see that very plainly that for hundreds of years, the Jebusites were living in the midst of Judah and Benjamin because neither tribe could take them out. And so they continued to harass them on a number of different sides and, and still lived in that area. And, and some of them became servants, but some of them also just became rebels, if you will, to the kingdom. And it's not until David becomes the king over all the tribes of Israel that you see the first thing he does after becoming the acknowledged king of Israel is to go and attack the Jebusites head on. And he takes out their stronghold. He destroys their fortress, basically, and makes the city no longer the city of the Jebusites, but the city of Jerusalem the city of David, the city of Zion, right? So he takes out the, most, the, the, the strongest of the strongholds, if you will, right in the middle of the territory of Judah, the, the place that should have been the, the first place to attack, and, and yet they couldn't do it. David does it, showing how it's to be done. Uh, this has been God's plan all along for Israel, that they were to take out these strongholds. For some reason or another, again, the individual tribes couldn't do it, which is strange given the fact that if you remember the, the first opportunity that Israel had when they first came into the promised land was to face the city of Jericho, which had a stronghold. And yet within a day, even within an hour, they took it merely by the breath of God. Without even lifting a weapon, the stronghold was destroyed. Why could they not do it afterwards? There are a number of reasons, but ultimately we're going to get to one explaining hopefully how this fits in with us. But in this particular case, I want you to know again, Paul is not speaking of earthly strongholds that we have to go and attack. So if there's anyone here who's already got their weapon out, put your guns back in its holder. That's not what we're talking about. Um, in, in fact, there's another passage that speaks similarly of this idea. In Judges chapter 6, the Lord commands Gideon to go and to pull down an altar of Baal in the midst of his own hometown. Uh, it's sitting on top of a stronghold. Literally, that's what the Scripture says along with the Asherah poles that are standing nearby, he is told to go and destroy all these things. And, of course, he's scared to do it because he knows what will happen. Many of the inhabitants of the city will hate his guts and will try to hurt him and his family. But nevertheless, he's called to pull down this fortification, not because it's a physical place of safety, but because it represents something symbolically of the idolatry of pagan gods. He's to tear that down because that has such an influence over his own hometown it has to be torn down. Proverbs 21, verse 22, uh, Solomon says, The wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the strongholds in which they trust. Gideon is told to tear down the strongholds that his own neighbors were trusting in. Now, in this case, Gideon was called to not, again, bring down a, a fortress, but simply a high tower, a high place, it's sometimes called in Scripture, but it was a symbol that they were supposed to destroy. Now, there's one level away from that that now Paul is talking about. Paul doesn't want us to go and tear down a fortress. He doesn't want us to go and tear down a mosque or a synagogue or anything of that nature. He's still not saying that, but rather, he's now talking about arguments. He's, he's using this illustration of warfare to talk about that we're to tear down the false beliefs and arguments on which unbelieving worldviews are built. Things that people have wrongly trusted in. Things that that belong to the devil rather than to Christ. Beliefs that build up false temples rather than the one true temple of Christ. That's, that's ultimately where he's going with this. But how do we do that? Well, through spiritual weapons. And the primary weapon that he's given to us is what? 
the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. We're supposed to take that up and to use that to destroy these demonic arguments. And that's basically what he's calling them. Acts 18, verse 24, there's a man named Apollo. You remember him? He comes in and he's described as an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures, it says. Literally in the Greek is the same word that's used here in our passage this morning. Literally means he's mighty in the Scriptures. Mighty to tear down strongholds. That's ultimately what Paul is, is referring to here, the idea that someone is mighty enough in the Scriptures that he can deal with the might of false theology, false belief, false practice. So if one wants to tear down strongholds that are spiritually demonic, sinfully rebellious in nature, one must first grow in his or her own knowledge of God's Word. If you want to be able to deal with spiritual warfare, you have to be grounded in God's Word. You have to be mighty in God's Word. That's where the strength comes from. It will not come from your boldness and your own personality. It will not come from anything of, of that, but it's only going to come through the power of God's Word. So we have to be grounded in God's Word. Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7 Paul says, we commend ourselves in every way by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. What is he talking about? Again, he's talking about the Word of God. We have it in our right hand and we have it in the left hand. We can fight with both hands. We can take it out because we know God's Word. If we don't know God's Word, we are completely ineffective. Some of you know that I have recommended a particular book in this <laughs> gathering of saints by the author John Bunyan. We know the name of that book now, I hope. Pilgrim's Progress. Well, there's another book, the second best allegory that's ever been written, called Holy War. I've mentioned that once before here, but now it's the second time. encourage you to read it. Read Pilgrim's Progress first, but then read Holy War. In that allegory, he deals with these issues head on. Uh, in the allegory, the heart of a man is represented as a city. So the, the whole story of Holy War is about this city called Man's Soul. And that's the name of the town, Man's Soul. But it represents the soul of a man. You get it, right? So Man's Soul was very good in the beginning. Uh, sort of like in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had perfect relationship with God. But then over time, the devil enters. And in the story, he's called Diabolos. Uh, he overthrows the city of Mansoul, and immediately he builds three seemingly impregnable strongholds in order to keep out the true king, El Shaddai, and his great prince, Emmanuel. The first stronghold was called the Hold of Defiance because it was created to keep the conquered city from the knowledge of its true king. Secondly, there was a fortress that was built that was called Midnight Hold, because it was built to keep man's soul from the true knowledge of itself. Who am I? What, do I? what am I supposed to be doing as a created person of God? And then secondly, there was a third, or sorry, thirdly, there was a, a tower that was, called, <clears throat> that was called Sweet Sin Hold. And you sort of get where he's going with this one, to keep out any desire for good and instead to love sin. These three strong towers, these three strongholds were to keep the prince and to keep the true king out of man's soul. The name of the governors that oversaw these were Spite God, Mr. Love No Light, and Sir Love Flesh. You can see he's, not, he's making it a little obvious in his allegory here. But nevertheless, the point is, these are the strongholds that Paul's talking about. He's not talking about going and taking out a building. He's not talking about going and taking down some false 
idol, if that's the case, at least not the physical context, but rather to take out the very worldview, the very strong holds of the mind and the heart that people have bought into, you have to hit them head on through the boldness of the authority of Christ. Don't let that go, if you will. There are lofty towers that stand in the heart of proud men that refuse to heed and to hear God's word. He says you have to be willing to go toe-to-toe with that. Otherwise, if you don't, then what will happen is that these, these worldviews will continue to tempt God's people in so many different ways in which God's name is disparaged uh, amongst his people. The, the church is discouraged. The, the, the world is dissuaded from ever hearing the gospel because they're so messed up in these awful worldviews. But, but it's very important, and this goes along with what Paul is stressing here in response to the attacks that are made upon him, is it's not just having the Word of God and having the truth, but it's being able to model that truth as well. And so the very fact that he's talking about, I'm coming to you in meekness and lowliness and gentleness, is because it's through the change of heart that happens as a result of this new truth that you're able to confront those who are attacking you in a very ungodly way. You're not going to match ungodly attacks with ungodly attacks. You have to flesh out the love of God. And so that's what Paul says, right? He says, speak the truth, what? In love. And so Paul is, even though he's being attacked left and right, he's not responding in kind. He's acting like Jesus, giving them the truth in love. That's the, the, the greatest, most powerful way to take out a strong tower of sin is you have to be able to come at it with the godliness of Christ as well as the truth of Christ. That's, that's number one. But it goes further. We're also to take captives According to 2 Kings chapter 24, if you remember when King Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the city of Jerusalem, 587 B.C., he carried away all the officials, all the skilled craftsmen, all the people that were of great importance to the city, if you will. He left mainly the poor people behind, but he took 10,000 captives into exile from the city of Jerusalem. Now, that was an exceptional number, but the, but the, the the concept of taking captives was the norm. Whenever you took out a city, you, you took captives, right? Uh, except on a few occasions, even when Israel took out a city, unless it was devoted to destruction according to the Lord's command, they were to take captives and to make sure that those captives became servants unto God's kingdom, servants unto the Lord, if you will. And in a sense, the Lord Jesus does the same thing. When he attacks the devil head on, He disarms the rulers and authorities, puts them to open shame, leading a host of captives when he ascended on high. And if you remember, it's a few months ago now, we were in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, when Paul said this, Christ leads us in triumphal procession, spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. What, What does he mean by that? Literally, when Christ won the battle, we are the captives that he has won. He's processing us throughout the world, spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of God through his servants, through those whom he has captured. We are his captives and willing captives at that. But in this particular passage, again, Paul goes a little bit differently because he's not talking about people per se, but rather the arguments that are being brought against uh, the church of God, brought against Christ. In this case, Paul is talking about taking captives, not people, but rather, again, this idea of the thoughts that are developing into these arguments that stand against God and the truth. Do you remember Romans? Great, great epistle. First chapter of Romans, do you remember when he says that unrighteous men 
have suppressed the truth by their unrighteousness. You remember that? Same word that's used as in our passage in the Greek. They are taking captive the truth. They're suppressing the truth. How do you defeat that? You have to take captive the lies. You can't let the lies stand, if you will. Every single time in philosophy and other realms of education, they're constantly trying to hold the truth captive somewhere over here outside of the realm of academia, right? Well, sometimes it happens even in the church where the truth is not heard, it's not spoken because the lie has won the day. And so he says, in order to win this argument, you have to start with the truth. You have to take captive. Every time these lies are spoken, you have to be able to confront that with the truth. Again, in love, but nevertheless, speak it the truth. In the song that we sang earlier, I think it was the second song that we sang, um, Oh Great God, right? There we prayed this prayer in this song. Oh Great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart, own it all and reign supreme conquer every rebel power let no vice or sin remain that resist your holy war you have loved and purchased me make me yours forevermore right so as a servant of christ i want to continue to be his captive and 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 hold the lies of god captive so that i can continue to grow in the truth of christ right that's that's the goal and as a church we want to do the same thing we want to continue to see the truth grow up the church. If we don't confront the lies, if we let them fester, what's going to happen? The truth splits, Christ's name is disparaged, and we all are discouraged. That's what happens. Now, in the, in the mindset of the growing believer, in sanctification, we're continuing to try to suppress those demonic thoughts that we know have been a part of our own processes, our own worldview, our own mindset, our own habits in the past. We're putting them to death in order to vivify the truth of the Spirit. But in the same way, we're, we're, we're called to do this in the church as well, as brothers and sisters in Christ for each other, not letting our brothers and sisters speak faithless, rebellious words that descend from this strong tower of a worldview that's in opposition to Christ. Does that make sense? Uh, again, it's, it's not just that I'm, I'm watching over myself in that regard, that I want to make sure that I'm suppressing these lies, but I want to make sure that when I hear them from you as a brother or sister in Christ, that I'm also confronting that. Don't let those lies continue to flow out of the stream. It needs to be cut off at its source. And it works the same way in, in apologetics. You know, when, you're, when you're trying to deal with an unbeliever and they're attacking the church, they're attacking Christ in some way, you have to be able to get to the root of the source. What is the truth? Again, we have to be grounded in God's Word to do that. We have to be ready and full of the Spirit to do that. But again, Acts 9, verse 22. Luke tells us early on in Paul's ministry that when, he, this time he was still called Saul, early on. He first became a believer in Christ. Uh, Luke says he was increasing more and more in spiritual strength through the Word of God so that he confounded the Jews living in Damascus, proving that Jesus was the Christ. Not that we all have to be the Apostle Paul. Not that we all have to have all the answers, if you will. But there's a spiritual power and strength that continues to grow in the man and the woman of God when they're in the Word of God to where they are ready to do battle on Christ's behalf. But if you have a lot of people in the church who barely read their Bibles, are they going to be able to fight? No. It's so important, he says, you have to be grounded in the Word of God. But, but in addition to that, I, I'd say this, in order to, to, 
to act upon that boldness that we're called to have when speaking the truth. Because I, I think it's not just the fact that we know the truth. I think there are many people that know the truth but yet won't act upon it. They won't act boldly on behalf of the truth. What's holding them back? I don't think that they understand the authority that they have in Christ Jesus. When you read the end of Matthew, chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, you remember what Jesus says to the disciples before he sends them out to go and preach the gospel to the world? What does he say? All authority in heaven and earth has been granted unto me. Therefore, you go and you command them to obey all that I have taught. Do you know how important that verse is? In other words, what he's saying is that the world is his. He's already won it. He's already won the war. Why are you so scared? You have the authority to speak truth into life of any single person on this planet, especially to those within the church. Why would you not speak the truth to your brother? You're afraid to hurt his feelings? Is that what holds you back? Or do you not know the power of the Spirit within you, the authority of Christ above you that has given you the right and the duty to go and tell your brother the truth in love? If you can't do that, and you won't do that, then what's going to happen? The church suffers. It suffers so much. One of the vows that you make as a member of the church, the last one that you make, is to study the purity and peace of the church. What does that mean? You're promoting purity. How do you do that? You talk about pure things. You protect purity by confronting the lies. And it could be something as simple as this. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard someone say, well, I talked to so-and-so, I can't tell you their name, but I talked to so-and-so, and, -so and uh, they're having troubles in their marriage, and they're thinking about having an affair with so-and-so. It happens. What do you say to that person? Oh, I'm sorry you feel that way. <laughs> no! You're thinking like the devil. I'm going to love you, but there's something wrong. We need to confront this with the truth. You know, you have someone who I was sharing with someone the other day, you know, the, uh, especially teens, and there's so many lies that fly around in teen culture. It's not even, it's not even funny, uh, but, but we're not willing to speak up and tell the truth. That, that, that's not the right mindset. We're to have the mind of Christ. You're thinking totally different than that. We need to be able to be able to speak up with the truth, but again, in love. So we have to be able to walk in the Spirit ourselves, be grounded in God's Word, and have the boldness to talk to people about the truth. And that leads to the third point. We're called to punish disobedience. 2 Kings chapter 25, after Nebuchadnezzar again destroys the city, takes his 10,000 captives, do you remember he brings Zedekiah, the king of Jerusalem, to uh, a, a town called Riblah, which is on the very borders of, of Canaan, on the borders of the Promised Land. And then he brings all of his sons to him and then slaughters them before his eyes. And then, what happens? Takes out his eyes as punishment for his disobedience to the king of Babylon. Because again, he was supposed to be a servant of Babylon. He had sort of engaged in a covenant with the king of Babylon. I'm going to serve you, and then he uh, reneged on his deal, if you will, and as a result, he's punished. Now, again, that punishment might seem extreme, uh, but do you remember after the walls of Jericho fell, after they were supposed to devote the entire city to destruction, and then Achan stole a few things? Do you remember what happened to him? Do you remember he and his 
family were stoned. Later on, they're stoned and then burned. Why? Because God's wrath is going to break out upon the whole nation because of this one man's sin. It wasn't pure. He had to protect the purity of the whole congregation, and so they had to punish this sin to keep it from hurting the rest of everyone else, from spreading. Again, what is the, the common analogy Jesus uses again and again? This yeast that continues to grow and to infect the whole lump. He says you have to be able to root out that yeast or else it's going to infect everything. Again, I'm not suggesting that we add stoning and burning to our list of church discipline. Paul isn't either. He's using this concept, this analogy, with how to deal with unrepentant sin. Go back to John Bunyan's Holy War. We see another example of this when Prince Emmanuel retakes the city of Mansoul. Yes. He gives the order immediately to call a court of judicature for the trial and execution of the Diabolonian rebels. Here's some of the names of those rebels. There was Mr. Atheism, Mr. Lustings, Mr. Forget Good, Mr. Hard Heart, and Mr. Haughty. Sound familiar? In this allegory, again, the names of the figures were not real men because the whole city is one man's soul, right? It's representing the thoughts, the worldviews, the schemes in the hearts of the man that are at odds with Christ. And so he's going to set the soul free from these sinful inclinations by punishing them, by putting them to death. In the realm of church discipline, we're not called to kill men. We're called to kill sin. Big difference. Paul says over and over again in this, in this book that his, his, his calling is to edify the church, not to destroy the church, not to destroy men, destroy sin in order to build up the body of Christ. If we're going to confront the sinner with the sin, we have to be willing to point out the sin and be willing to enact discipline against it in the context of the church. What does that mean? Well, it means that if he's unrepentant, you don't just let him continue to go about his day freely and do nothing else. You have to confront it. And Paul even talks about, in the context of this Corinthian church, turning the man over to Satan. If that's what he wants to be and do so much, give him over to Satan to where he's no longer a part of the church of Christ. Because if you don't, what's he going to do? He's going to act like yeast and continue to infect the church and destroy the church from within. So this is exactly what Paul's saying, that when he comes to Corinth, he will, in fact, use his apostolic authority to administer discipline against the rebels in the church. He's, He's basically promising, I'm coming, I'm going to do this. His desire is not to have to do it all by himself. He wants the church in unity to see the need for this, to love Christ and his purity so much that they absolutely see this has to be done. And what happens when you don't do that? How many denominations have you all come from? How many churches have you seen split, left and right? How many times has this happened? Just in the last, say, two years. Again and again and again, churches are falling apart left and right because they will not deal with sin. They want to be nice. Everybody has to be nice. Let's stop talking about doctrine. Let's start talking about the things that bring chaos. But if you're going to pursue purity, it automatically disrupts the peace. As you're pursuing peace, all of a sudden you start to see there's some impurities. It has to be both. 
can't be one or the other. You can't just be the nice guy who sits in the middle of the aisle. I'm not left or the right. Don't give me that. You, you have to take a side. It's either Christ's side or it's the devil's. That Christ has one scheme, the devil has another entirely. You see, just as the individual tribes could not destroy the stronghold of the Jebusites, it took King David to come in, unifying the tribes. We're going to take out the Jebusites. We're going to destroy their strongholds. And this is what the Apostle Paul is wanting to do. He's following the pattern of Christ. Christ comes in. He's already won the battle. He's won the war. Gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. Paul's saying, we need to do this together. I can't do this on my own. If I do it on my own, you're all just going to be scared to death, and you're going to obey, but probably the church is going to split anyway. He wants them all to buy into the truth, to buy into the importance of the purity of the church. He promises that he will take action, but notice he says there at the end of verse 6, basically he's holding off on coming until their obedience is complete. What does he mean? He means he wants them to obey his command to take action against these offenders. If you don't do it, I'm reluctant to come because I don't want to be that guy who's always the bad guy, always telling you what what you've done wrong. I want you to come alongside of me. Let's work on this together to save the church at Corinth. So he's promising to take action. But uh, you ask again, why is this so important? How do we... How do we apply this? Uh, again, it's primarily in reference to church discipline. You can apply it to your own sanctification, uh, how, you, how you deal with sin in your life and things of that nature. But ultimately, w- why do we do this? Because the Scripture says we're, we're to seek first the kingdom of God and what? His righteousness, His purity, His holiness. If we're doing that, then we have to deal with sin. If, if we're to submit ourselves in every thought to God, the church is to do the same. We're to submit all of our thoughts to God and to Christ. We can't let these things just run rampant. It's very, very important that we address them head on. Why? Because if we're a believing community that represents Christ and we're, we're either teaching lies or we're letting sin run rampant, what happens? The whole community around us just laughs and, and, and scorns and mocks us because we're so weak and so really worthless. Why are we even here if we're acting just like the world? What's the difference, you see? But what, what was the song that we sang, O Church of God, Arise? Why? Because you're a radiant bride. And on the day, we hadn't got to this part yet, but Paul's going to talk about, I'm so eagerly looking forward to the day where I present you as this beautiful bride unto Christ. And if I have to beat my, my own body till it's dead, and I have to continue to humble myself and take one barrage after another, and then speak boldly in the truth to you, I'm going to do that until all the blemishes are worked out. Because I want to present you as the glorious and radiant bride of Christ to my Savior. That's why we do church discipline. And maybe there might be one or two other sermons that still talk about this later on. But no, this is Paul's thinking, which is the mind of Christ. It's Christ's thinking. And if it's Christ's thinking, it should be our thinking as well. Amen? Let's pray together. Our Father, we do, once again, we we submit ourselves to you. We know that we don't do that well. We know that there are all sorts of errant thoughts, uh, thoughts that still reek of the devil. 
uh, that we, we fight against on a daily basis. Sometimes we don't fight against them, and we let them run rampant with our own soul. We know that man's soul can so easily be led astray. Lord, help us, Lord, to continue the fight, continue to persevere in the faith in Christ Jesus. But we pray as well, Lord, that the church would continue to fight and to persevere. We know that in any day, any week, Lord, there are attacks that come from a wide variety of avenues. Lord, we pray. Protect your church, Lord, from the devil. Give us that peace and purity that you've called us to, Lord. Give us the boldness in Christ Jesus that we hold on to our confidence in Christ Jesus, that we would walk and and speak with the authority of Christ. We would not be afraid to speak up for the truth. We would not be afraid to do what is right. Lord, give us the strength to love you and to love our neighbor as ourselves, we pray.